0: Okay, so today we look at one of the shortest books in the Bible as we open up this uh, Sunday School series. Um, Only Obadiah is shorter. And uh, the message of Haggai, though, um, is, you know, the importance of the message of Haggai far exceeds the sheer, you know, uh, volume uh, of its verses. Um, it's, uh, It's written to those who start out with a zeal for God and grow complacent. Busy with the stuff of everyday life, like work and raising families and starting a a, a a a career and things like that. And so right away, as I just said that last sentence or you, you know, I thought, oh, this so so applies to me, right? Because because uh, we all get busy with the the you know sort of the the rat race, right? Of uh, taking kids to school and and, and, and picking up uh, kids from sporting practices and, and uh, you know, holiday events and, and, uh, and, and uh, just, uh, you know, trying to get ahead at work and all these sorts of things. And, and these everyday things can crowd out our, uh, our zeal uh, for God. And that's what Haggai, the message of Haggai, uh, is, is speaking to. Um, so let's start out by laying out the historical context for uh, Haggai's message uh God had done uh just an enormous uh sweep of things with the nation of Israel up to this point I've tried to give i don't know if might be standing in the in the way of it but I tried to give you a little bit of a of a timeline here um so I'll, I'll try to just highlight some things quickly so that we can get to the text um <clears throat> in six twenty seven b c Jeremiah began his ministry <clears throat> and he prophesied to Judah against their idolatry. Okay, So this is before the exile. Right? So Jeremiah uh, prophesies to Judah against their exile. Despite the young king Josiah's reforms, his grandfather Manasseh had opened the nation up to the widespread uh, worship of all different kinds of pagan gods. Um, and uh, though there was a little bit of a respite there under Josiah, Um, This uh, this this pathway that Manasseh had opened up uh, would put the nation on a crash course uh, with God's judgment. So Jeremiah 25, uh, I'm just going to read a few verses uh, from that chapter. This is Jeremiah writing, you have never listened nor inclined your ears to hear. Although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil ways and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words. Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And you shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So that was, that was predicted before the exile, right? This was a horrific prediction that the Jews would be taken captive. They would be ripped out of the, the land of promise, the land that God had promised to the patriarchs. And they would uh, be forced to live in Babylonian exile for an entire generation. What's more, the city of Jerusalem and the temple of Jehovah would be leveled. 2 Kings 25 records the devastation that Nebuchadnezzar brought upon Jerusalem. This doesn't, this doesn't certainly uh, capture all of it, but this is a shocking couple of sentences. 2 Kings 25.9 He burned down the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain and the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. The city was razed. It was leveled. Right? All but the poorest of the land were either executed or carried off as slaves to Babylon. <clears throat> Not unlike the idolatrous generation of those who were rescued out of Egypt who died in the wilderness outside of Canaan, another generation of Israelites would live their lives outside the blessing of the Promised Land, but this time in exile. Jeremiah's prophecy had an end date to it. God in his mercy wouldn't cast out his people forever. Praise. Him. Jeremiah 29:10, "When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place." You may recall that that's the very passage that Daniel ran across in Daniel chapter 9 that gave him such hope. Because he calculated that they were almost 70 years in exile when he read that and he began to pray. Pray a prayer of repentance for the for the nation, and praying that God would release his people from exile and restore them uh, to the land. And of course, God heard Daniel's prayer and remembered his promise through Jeremiah. And in 539 BC, Cyrus the Great, the Persian king, defeated Babylon. And this was this was but the first thing that God brought about. Uh, to bring the people back to Judah. I just want you to stop here and just pause. This is not a history lesson, per se. God changed the course of world powers in order to release His people from exile, to keep His promise, so so that the prophecy of Jeremiah might come to pass. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Just one uh, uh, just one year later, Cyrus issued a decree releasing the Jews from exile, freeing them to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of the Lord. People who had been born in exile, who had only heard stories of the promised land, who had never participated in any of the great festivals of, 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 their, of their heritage were now uh, released so that they might return to the land. But more than that, Cyrus ordered anyone uh, they were near to give them whatever resources they would need to rebuild the house of the Lord, the temple. This is recorded in 2 Chronicles 36 uh, at the end of uh, 2 Chronicles and, and more fully in Ezra 1, 1 through 1-4. But I just want, again, just to highlight the Lord's work here just in Ezra 1, 1. We, we've, we've looked at this. uh clip took us through this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So not only did, did, did God take Babylon out of power and raise up Persia, He also stirred in the actual heart of the king of Persia so that He would release uh, uh, God's people. But despite the Lord moving Cyrus... To release them and providing them with all the resources that that they would need to rebuild the temple, the people had failed to do it. Now, one reason was the opposition that they had faced, and and and, uh, and, and Cliff pointed this out for us in Ezra chapter four, and <clears throat> verses four through five. Be reminded of this opposition: the the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So you can kind of just quickly see the years of their reigns, right? So Cyrus, uh, though he didn't defeat the Babylonians until, where is that? Uh, 539. He, he, he sat on the throne from 559 to 530. <clears throat> His son for 12 years, and then Darius, all that time, opponents to the rebuilding of the temple. That struck fear in the hearts uh, of the Israelites. <clears throat> James Montgomery Boyce, uh, a famous pastor who's, uh, who's gone on to uh, be with the Lord and, and commentator, uh, explains the rest. He writes this: Cyrus died in battle, and his successor Cambyses—I don't know if I'm saying that right—was pushed to stop the work. When the work ceased, that is the work of building the temple, when the work ceased, the people turned to private affairs and gradually became used to worshipping among the ruins of the once great temple. Desire to rebuild died out. Now we want to be careful here. We want to be careful not to simply sort of lump these returned exiles into the same basket as the disobedient idolaters of Jeremiah's day. We want to make a distinction here. These were the faithful minority that had made the long, hard trip back to Jerusalem when Cyrus had permitted them to, to leave. Ezra 2 tells us that there were only about 50,000 that made, made up that trip. That sounds like a huge number. But when you think of you know the, the 2 million plus that were released uh, from Egyptian slavery, it's, it's pretty small by comparison. And so these returned exiles, these were the faithful. These were the ones that that left all of the, the the security and the jobs and whatever sort of whatever sort of life they had built in Babylon, they left these things and went back to the Promised Land. Consider what they what they would have what, what that would have looked like. Most of these people had never been to the Promised Land. They didn't even know what they were what they were going to, right? But they did know that they were going to a city that, that had been that had been raised that had been leveled. Right? And they had initially been zealous for the restoration of worship and the rebuilding of God's house, which included taking up a substantial offering for the work. Ezra 2, uh, 68 and 69 records this. So it's not that the people rejected God and abandoned the covenant. If we, if, if we, if we make that conclusion, then I think we start to see uh, Haggai in, in the wrong light. Nevertheless, the people had done something wrong. They had grown complacent, and they turned their attention from building the temple, rebuilding the temple, God's house, to the building of their own homes and their their own private lives. So let's let's uh, we've already read it once, but I'm going to read it again. Haggai chapter one, uh, beginning in verse one. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors." governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Well, this is quite an account. Through the mouth of his prophet Haggai, God called his people to see the futility of building a life which was not first built around worshiping Him. The text is divided easily into three sections that are marked by the Word of God calling the people to consider two things. Being obedient to the Lord's call to restore His temple rather than focusing on their own personal comfort. And two, for the people to consider the consequences of their delayed obedience. Okay, So so I'm suggesting to you that the text falls into three pieces. Right, each having this this sort of focus. The word of the Lord coming, calling the people to consider these two things: to forsake their the the working for their own personal comfort and turn to the work of the Lord, focusing on on worshiping Him as primary to their lives, and then second to consider the consequences of their decision. So, the first first section. The text begins with Haggai laying out the facts, verses one through six. The first fact would have been a hugely encouraging one. It starts on uh, it doesn't feel like it. It feels like just sheer history, just sheer detail, but the first fact that Haggai points out is hugely encouraging or should have been. God had mercifully revealed himself to the people and provided them not only with building materials but with the leaders they needed to rebuild the covenant community in Jerusalem. Look at verse one and and you may have you may have already noticed it because of the repetition in this short uh, chapter, but, but Haggai points out not only that the word of the Lord came by his hand, right? but it came to Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now in these opening words, we see that God has provided a prophet for the people to hear God's wise and life-giving words. God was under no obligation to send a prophet. God was under no obligation to the people, these people that had ignored his house. He was under no obligation to send them another word of encouragement, to send them (coughs) another warning. But he did, in his mercy. He also sent a high priest to mediate the relationship of, of God to his people through sacrifice. Right? I mean, you think about the Old Testament uh, regulations for worship—how strict they were, right? And uh, <clears throat> and they needed a qualified priest, and and here God had provided them one, uh, <clears throat> had provided them one in the person of Joshua. And finally, He had provided them a king to rule the people under God's law. This is this is Zerubbabel. Now, he's the least obvious, right? I say king, you think, well, Cyrus is still ruling over them, right? But, <clears throat> but somebody had to be the, the sort of uh, the, the, the governor, the, the one, the overseer of the, of the people, right? First Chronicles 3 makes clear that Zerubbabel is in the royal line of David. And for a people living among the ruins of a once great city that was called by his name, by David's name, this was sure to provide a measure of hope among god's people. Think about this you're you're you i mean sort of step into their shoes. you are now back in in Jerusalem, and the place is just a miserable place i mean we've have you seen those uh those movies uh, uh from World war II in cities right and and the and if you've seen like Band of brothers there was a number of scenes like this. Where the American troops would come into the town, and there'd still be some town people there, but they'd be living in these buildings that are half, you know, fallen down and, and, and uh, no exterior walls and just living in the rubble. This is you. This is the returned people in Jerusalem. And you've been provided with an heir of David as the governor of this newly restored people. What, what, what a word of hope! What a word of hope to people that are living in the rubble and a feeling like we're back in the land, but this is what we're back to? Well, this would, this would have no doubt been uh, a word of encouragement you know, that God's promises were true. He had promised that there would always be a descendant of David on Israel's throne, and they had been a conquered people for more than a full generation at this point. And in pointing out the fact that God had provided them with these leaders, we are reminded of God's faithfulness to keep His promises. I mean, th- this promise was made a long time ago, right? I mean, much had happened since since David was on the throne, right? Solomon followed him. At his death, the the kingdom was divided, right? You had all of these all of these different battles with foreign peoples and uh, an idolatry that had made its way into uh, into God's kingdom, earthly kingdom. And, uh, and here, God was keeping His promise that, that, that somebody from the line of David would govern the people. So this is extraordinary, the first uh, fact that, that Haggai points out. The second fact then is, is both ironic and tragic. The people didn't trust God's timing. It's extraordinary. Verse 2. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. What an indictment. That was not as if the people were merely lazy. That's not the point here. Ezra 4, remember, had had, uh, described this this fear that had come upon the people uh, because of the opposition to the temple project. But it also hadn't been been years of the people going out to face that opposition either. It hadn't been day in, day out, going out, starting to work on the temple, the opposition came, and then they went back to their homes in fear day after day after day. That's not the picture either. I can hear my own voice trying to justify my selfish behavior. I can hear myself with that. I'll be more useful to God if I have a secure and comfortable home to live in. I need to I need to work where there's no opposition. Surely God doesn't want me to be you know put myself out there, put myself in a dangerous spot. I'll work where it's safe to work. But whatever their reasons, the people had made peace with the fact that God would surely be okay with obeying him, but obeying him later building the temple at a time when it was safer to do so in their judgment. One commentator wrote of how serious a sin this was. At the root of this sin is the nastiness of pride, the belief that our wisdom and preferences are greater than His. This passage reminds us that God's greatest desire for us is that we honor Him and obey His commands. final fact was the fruit of their labors or rather the lack of fruit fruit of their labors and how it ought to have shown them the foolishness of serving themselves rather than God Verses five and six consider your ways you've sown much and harvested little you eat but you never have enough you drink but you never have your fill you clothe yourselves but no one is warm And he he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. God was here calling the people to think about the choice that they had made and what it had got them. They had made a choice to disobey Him, to be outside of His intention for His people. Think about all that God had done. We just, you know, going through the timeline and bringing the people to this place. They had essentially said, this isn't the time. Well, God was calling them to think about their actions. When we do this, when we disobey Him, when we put ourselves outside of God's intention for us, we put ourselves in a precarious position of being outside of our ability to flourish, and that's what was going on with these people. This is what Haggai was calling them to think through. Now, <clears throat> he he'd focused in on these very material things, right—the warmth of clothes, clothing, and the and the uh, the, the nourishment of food, and the satisfaction of, that, that water and drink brings, and, and these kinds of things, and the work of their hands. And these things had not gone as well as they hoped. Their expectations had not been met. Haggai was calling them to consider being outside of God's will and what has been the fruit of of your labors. Now this is not like the health and wealth word of faith promises that false teachers like Benny Hinn or Joel Osteen or Joyce Meyer makes. This is not a promise of do what God says and you get riches and fame and illness-free bodies. That's not what Haggai's talking about. Rather, God was calling the people to consider their lack of fulfillment. Their sense of always running and never getting there. They were never satisfied, yet always longing for more. Never finishing their house and so never getting to the work of God's house. Never returning to the, the center of of of, of the covenant community. Well, after giving them the facts, Haggai moves to call the people to repent and obey. We see this in verses 7-11. through Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Haggai called the people to, to obey now. Not when you think it's the right time, but obey now. The time to obey the Lord is always right now, not when we feel like it. The people are given two reasons to obey God by putting His desires before their personal ambitions. The first is this. Serving the Lord when it costs you demonstrates faith in Him and your evaluation that He is worthy of your sacrifice right when we obey the lord and it costs us when we obey the lord and it puts us into danger when 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 it when it makes our own personal comfort be you know put on on you know uh, uh, lay down as a sacrifice this demonstrates faith in god Faith that that he will be he will do what he says he's going to do that he will be with us and and, and and he will bless us because we are being obedient to him we show that he's worth the sacrifice. God's jealous for his own glory and he is right to be so. And so by obeying him in this way in this way that's dangerous and sacrificial. This sort of obedience brings God joy. It's extraordinary that we have the ability to make God smile. Verse 8, Build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. It's extraordinary. That in and of itself right, is a reward. Right? The second reason is that God had long promised His people blessings for obedience and cursing for disobedience. Passages like Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 are very detailed on this score. Right? If we had the time, we'd go back there and, and read long sweeps of, of, of Deuteronomy 28 through 30. And, and you'll be blessed in all these different ways in your field and in the city and, and all these things if you obey. But if you don't obey, right? then then you won't be blessed in these ways. And much of the language in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, passages like that, are alluded to here. Look at the second half of verse 9. My house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I've called for a drought on the land, and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Now, friends, the the land was the the focal point of God's inheritance to the people in that day. Now, it pointed to a a greater truth of of being with God in Christ, but 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 this is the Old Testament economy. This is the this is the. The precursor, if you will, to to being with God in Christ is to being in the land where the temple would be set up, and He would dwell with His people. And 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 you you know, when you think of the land, you think of all of these of these promises of the fruit of the land, the blessings of the land, a land running with with uh, with milk and honey, right? And so now you read this text and. And all of these different fruits of the land are are being cursed. The dew is being withheld, right? And the the ground isn't producing what, what, what is expected. Thus we see the people getting what God promised for disobedience. In effect, Haggai reminds them, if you want to rely on yourselves, you will not get abundant blessing and all satisfying joy from men. You'll get food that rots and money that doesn't last. Rely on yourself, you don't get abundance. Have you ever experienced this in times of disobedience and pride in your own life? How many times do we rely on ourselves in this life and ignore God's call for us to be submissive and sacrificial and zealous for the things of the Lord? And the result is not peace that God promises His people who believe in Him. But rather, what we experience is chaos and worry and fear and bitterness, right? Because when we don't obey Him, when we don't trust Him, we don't get the fruit, that covenant fruit. And this, I think, is what's going on here in these uh, this middle section of the passage. Well, finally, let's look at the glorious work of God in His people in the in, in verses twelve through fifteen. Throughout so much of history, God's people had failed to listen to the warnings of the prophets. I mean, it's one of the like it's one of the things we know about the Old Testament, right? Uh, you know, it, it, even if we're sitting here this morning thinking like I don't know a ton about the Old Testament history or something, but I know this: the people were disobedient and didn't listen to the prophets. I got that down, right? And that's 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 sort of what we know about much of Israel's history. But Haggai's message here serves as proof of God's power in His Word. God's mercy to bring His people to repentance through His message to them. Verse 12, Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel and Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. Now this verse, in and of itself, we could park here a long time and just talk about uh, the role of God's prophet and how <clears throat> the prophet was divinely given God's very words. They're they're equated here in this verse, right? And uh, but we see here the power of God's word to change the hearts of His people. In contrast to the many prophets who lamented Israel's long disobedience and hardness of heart, Haggai's message from the Lord takes about three and a half weeks for the returned exiles to respond in faith. We've got these markers at the, at the beginning and end of our text, right? Um, verse 1, the sixth month on the first day of the month, right? Second year of Darius. At the end, the 24th day of the month, and the 6th month, second year of Darius, right? So I'm not smart enough to do the uh, you know, calibration to our way of thinking about dates, but other smart people have done it, and they are universally agreed. August 29th to September 21st, 520 B.C. That's pretty exact, isn't it? August 29th, that's the beginning of the text, September 21st, 520 B.C. That's three and a half weeks. People in despair, in fear, cowering, disobedient, the word of the Lord comes. The people do consider their ways. And they repent and turn back to God. Friends, this is extraordinary. Right? This is extraordinary to take, take a people that were that had that had been complacent, that had started out being zealous for God going on this long uh, difficult journey back to the land, right and and being disappointed with what they found and then and then facing opposition after initially having a good start and, and started to lay the foundation of the temple and these sorts of things and then sort of abandoning the work for their for their own comfort because they were afraid initially. And now the people are back about God's work. It's extraordinary. but lest we think they did so, only to get more crops or to be uh, more financially successful, verse 12 finishes with the familiar and life-giving words: the people feared the Lord. They feared him because true blessing in life only comes from his hand. Joy and peace flow only from his gracious, gracious covenant with his people. And they had been, their eyes had been drawn to this conclusion through the prophet's words. These, this refrain, consider your ways. Consider your ways. We don't have it in the third section, but what we have in the third section is the people actually considering their ways. So, so it's, it's, it's really this beautiful uh, bringing along of the people back to God. The ultimate blessing for God's people is not found in this world, though it reverberates in this world. The ultimate blessing of God's people is God. Verses 13 and 14. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, of Joshua, and of all the remnant of the people. God's presence is everything for God's people. It is true blessing. It gave Joseph the ability to succeed as a slave in Potiphar's house, and and, and even in prison, and even to the ruling of Pharaoh's kingdom. The end of Genesis tells us over and over again that God was with Joseph and caused everything to succeed at His hand. And in 520 B.C. it gave the people of God the ability to overcome their fear and pride and obey the Lord. Verse 14, they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. God had brought them back to do what He wanted them to do. This too was a pivotal point in the history of of God's relationship with His people. You and I get complacent in our Christian walk. We stop focusing on serving Him and growing in our relationship with Him, our worship of Him. That's what these people had done. We begin focusing more on school or family or work or hobbies or money or entertainment. But we need to be reminded that Jesus came not only to offer us a way to heaven, but a way for us to be ever and always with Him and satisfied with Him. John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's not that these people got saved. It's that these people, God's people, were called back to focus on what was important on serving the Lord. And I think we too need to be called back again and again. Because though we don't lose our faith, we don't lose our standing with God, we get distracted. And we stop being faithful to God. We stop serving Him with our gifts. We stop We stop <clears throat> uh, uh, serving other people. We stop praying and Talking to Him and building our relationship with Him. We stop trusting Him. We start thinking that our timetable is the right timetable, not His. If you've let other pursuits crowd out the joy of knowing and serving Christ, consider your ways. That's the message of this text. Consider the lack of true blessing and joy that you are experiencing. Having wandered away from the pack and trusting in your own work. Consider your way. Hear His voice and repent from your apathy. Now is the time to serve Him with all your energy and resources. Don't worry about your life. Jesus says this. Uh, it's recorded in Matthew, right? D- don't worry about what you will wear or what you will, what you will eat or, or where you will live. Make serving Him your highest priority. Matthew 6.33 Seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness and all these things, these material things, will be added to you. So it's not that this is a serve God to get physical things, it's serve God so that you get God and everything else will get taken care of. Right? And this is the message of Haggai 1. I hope that's a blessing to you. Let's pray.